All right, turn to Ephesians chapter 5 tonight, and uh, we'll get there shortly. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refer back to that passage just once or twice, so you can put a bookmark in there if you want to. Um, but I have a few other passages to get you to turn to as well as we go through the lesson tonight. So turn to those with me if you can as we get to them as well. But we've already covered the first in the acrostic of the Baptist distinctives, which is what? Alex? Biblical authority. Very good. And we're going to get to, uh, that was the easy one. We're going to get to a whole lot more later, all right? Uh, second one tonight, but 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus, right? Somebody said this, if it's in the Bible, it's Baptist. If it's Baptist, it's in the Bible. At least that's the way that it should be, right? We don't believe that our Baptist distinctives are going to get us to heaven. Um, you don't have to be a Baptist to get to heaven, but you do have to believe in faith uh, by uh, believe in uh, Jesus Christ alone as the only way to heaven, by grace through faith, right? But we do say that Baptist doctrine is Bible doctrine, and Bible doctrine is Baptist doctrine. I mean, obviously you can say it both ways, but, but the, the, the set of beliefs that we commonly call the Baptist distinctives is what God would have all churches to believe in to practice. I believe that as, as much as I'm standing here. I wouldn't be a Baptist if I didn't believe that Baptist doctrine was Bible doctrine and that every other church should have the same thing. I, I, I would say that there's obviously some things that we can disagree on without either one of them being wrong, right? You can, you can choose what color you, pews you want. You can choose what style a building should look like and all of those other things. And I mean, I don't think that they're necessarily wrong, but that's not doctrine. That's just, you know, uh, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Preference, that's right, preference. And, but but where, when it comes to doctrine and where it comes to doctrine, I believe that, uh, that the Baptist distinctives are the Bible distinctives. And so last week we looked at that first Baptist distinctive, which is biblical authority. And as Baptists, we believe that the Bible is the only authority for our faith and our practice as a church. And, and that's in, in contradiction to tradition, which a lot of churches you know, um, use as their standard for faith and practice, or creeds, or any of those other kind of things. Continuing revelation is another one that, that people often, you know, refer to all the time as something that would be over the authority of the Bible. As Baptists, we find nothing to be over the authority of the Bible, and it's the Bible and the Bible alone. So tonight, we're going to look at the autonomy of the local church. Let me read to you our direct statement of faith in our church constitution as it relates to autonomy. It says this, we believe in the autonomy of the local church, free of any external authority or control. So tonight, the second in the acrostic of Baptist, B is biblical authority, A is autonomy. Let's say those two, ready? Biblical authority, autonomy, all right? That's the first two, and we're going to continue on with that, but we're going to look at autonomy tonight. Let's pray, and then we'll look at a few of these things. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for an opportunity we have to study your word. I pray that you'd help us as, as much as we know how to be as close to your word as we possibly can be, and then when we establish the truths that we find in it, that we'd stand on those truths and even be willing to die for those truths if need be. And God, I pray that you'd help us to understand these things as we go through them tonight. We thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we get into this, let me say the same thing that I said about biblical authority. 
We don't believe that Baptists are the only ones who hold to biblical authority. There are other denominations out there who say that the Bible is their only authority. And we're not the only ones who hold to autonomy either. Now, the, the, what makes Baptist Baptist is we hold to all of the Baptist distinctives, and there's no other group out there that holds to all of them. So we're not the only ones that hold the Bible as a final authority, but we do hold the Bible as a final authority. We're not the only ones who claim autonomy, but we do claim autonomy. And so the, let's, let's talk about the meaning of that, first of all. What is autonomy? Well, uh, simple definitions. Autonomy is a self-governing community. That's what autonomous means. It means it, it is, uh, in, a, in a church context, it means that we are completely independent, which, by the way, obviously there's a lot of different denominations of Baptists. Most of them do not, uh, uh, do not uh, claim complete independence, right? They are under some umbrella organization, which is what you find in the Southern Baptist Church and a lot of the other different Baptist churches. They're in some kind of group that, that in some form or another tells them what they have to do in their church. Um, so really, independent Baptist is the only one that makes sense when it comes to this idea of autonomy. We're not part of any larger denominational grouping. We're not part of any kind of organized association of churches or any of those things. Now, that word autonomy comes from two words, which means self and law. So essentially, it literally means self-governing. And so an autonomous church governs itself without any outside human director, without any outside control. Every Baptist church is granted the right to be self-ruling and self-directed. Turn over to Matthew 22. We're independent of all other churches, all other bodies of men as to the administration of, of the affairs that we have in our church. And, of course, then we should be free from any other human authority. This church is completely free to conduct ministry the way that we want to conduct the ministry um, as long as what? As long as we follow the Word of God, as long as the Bible is our authority. Nobody else can tell us what to do as long as the Bible is doing that, right? So what does autonomy mean for our church? Well, each local church is to call its own pastor, to carry out its own discipline, preach the statutes of the Word of God, endeavor to serve the Lord as guided by the Holy Spirit, right? Which, is, again, if, if we're not being guided by the Holy Spirit in the things that we're teaching and preaching, then who cares if you have autonomy it means nothing in the context of the Word of God and in context of biblical authority if we're not being led by the Holy Spirit. So autonomy means that each Baptist church selects that pastoral leadership. It determines its, you know, the, the, the type of worship that they're going to have, the financial matters, all other church-related affairs without anybody that's, that's from the outside telling us what we can or cannot do or have to or, or cannot do and so on. So being autonomous then means that we have no, we don't recognize any governmental control over faith and religious practices. Again, Matthew chapter 22 and verse number 21, Jesus made that very clear. He said, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Now, there's people out there who would say, you ought not to pay your taxes or any of those other things. Government doesn't have any right to tell you what to do. In those matters, they do, right? That's a governmental matter. That's, that's a, a, a law, a ruling order, right? But when it comes to religion, the government has no right to put their hands in anything that we're doing in our church, which again is why, you know, during COVID, we didn't, we didn't close down when, you know, and, and thankfully in our area, they were very 
good about that, but we weren't going to close down whether they said we had to or not. And every church that you see that got a lot of pushback from the government and were getting fined and everything else have now sued, and every single one of them won. Because at least in the United States, we still do have the freedom of religion, which means the government doesn't have any right to put their hands on anything that has to do with religion. They can't tell us which Bible we can and cannot preach. They, cannot, they can't tell us that, you know, I mean, they're trying to now call a lot of things in this Bible hate speech, right? But as of, as of yet, they, they don't have any right to say that that's what it is. Because again, before God, we have the right to do the things uh, religiously, that we feel are right by the word of God. We, we should do the things governmentally um, and, and um, law-wise, if that's not the right word, but law-wise, uh, what the government says that we should do when it comes to those things, as long as it does not contradict the word of God. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, render to, uh, and, and of course then to God the things that are God's. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't push back against taxes being too high or regulations being too strict or any of those kind of things doesn't mean we can't do those things. We have, we have rights as citizens as well, but that means that the government does not have any right to reach into the church, which is why our founding fathers uh, established a principle in the law of separation of church and state, right? doesn't mean that we can't have influence over the people who are in the government. doesn't mean that Christians can't be in the government, but the government does not have any right to come into the church and tell us what we can and cannot do. So what, what autonomy does not mean then? Uh, what does autonomy not mean? Probably would be a better way to say that. Well, number one, autonomy does not mean isolation. There's, there's nothing unscriptural for two or more churches to cooperate together in fellowship. You want to have a uh, men's camp out where a bunch of churches come together? Do it. You want to have a revival service where a bunch of churches come together? Nothing wrong with that. And we see that happening you know, a, a lot in the Bible where, where different groups would, would come together and do different things and, and uh, churches working together to reach certain areas and, and you know, churches sending out missionaries and so on. So it doesn't mean that you cannot do anything with any other, with any other church, but one church is not to exercise that authority over another church. And it's not, you know, um, associations cannot do that. Fellowships cannot do that. Uh, nothing can exercise authority over a local church. Every local assembly is going to stand before God as an independent entity, and it's responsible for their own actions. So autonomy does not mean isolation, but also then turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1. Autonomy does not mean that each church decides for itself what is true doctrine. We cannot rewrite the Bible because we want to rewrite the Bible, because we're independent and we can do what we want to do, right? The Bible is our sole authority in all matters, including doctrine. So what the Bible says, we must do. We don't have that authority, even, even though no, no other entity can tell us what to do, we don't have the authority to supersede the Bible. The Bible is our sole authority. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. So you can't, you know, take a verse, take it out of context, make it say what you want it to say, and then claim this as a doctrine. And a lot of cult organizations do just that. They're independent, but they've taken this, this one thing, they've taken that out of context, they've changed it to mean something that it doesn't mean, and then they... Make that the foundation for everything that they do. The Bible establishes truth, not congregational autonomy. And, and, and honestly, we see that happening a lot of times in, in our culture today. We talked about this, but the Methodist church is a perfect example of that, right? 
There's a huge rift in the Methodist church right now because there's a bunch of them that want to see abortion uh, be part of their st- uh, part of their bylaws and say that abortion is okay. They want to have you know uh, homosexual marriage and have have their preachers be able to be homosexuals and everything else. And there's another whole section of the Methodist church that does not want that because the Bible is against those things, right? But what's happening is the more culture says. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. You're the crazy one for saying that homosexuality is is not normal. You're the crazy one for not agreeing with abortion. And the church starts moving closer and closer and closer to culture, and eventually it's culture that's dictating what is truth and not the Bible. And that's why you're seeing a lot of rifts in a lot of these organizations and denominations. The Bible establishes truth. It doesn't matter what the congregation wants. It doesn't matter what the government wants. It doesn't matter what the people in a community want. It matters what the Bible says. And what the Bible says is our final authority. So autonomy does not mean that every church decides for itself what is true doctrine. So then what is our biblical basis for local church autonomy? Well, I probably had you turn away before we even read it, but turn back over to Ephesians chapter 5. Sorry about that. But Ephesians chapter 5, and we have a few things here that I want to give you as the basis for local church autonomy. Number one comes from the fact that Christ is the head of the church. It never said the Pope was the head of the church. It never said the, the head of the Baptist Bible Fellowship was the head of, of, of the church. It never said the, uh, you know, the uh, cardinal or the bishop or anybody else was the head of the church. Christ is, and we see that in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, a couple pages before that. I've got three verses that I want to look at here that very clearly establish the very fact that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 18. Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 18. Talking about Jesus Christ, and if you read through that entire passage, it's not taking it out of context at all. To say that in in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. We believe that the church is the local physical assembly of, of Christians in a particular location rather than, some, rather than some universal group known as the church that all Christians belong to. In other words, we believe, we believe in churches rather than the church, right? Uh, Mount Victory is a church. Our friends up the road at Gill Grove is a church. They make up individual churches, not the church. That means that we believe Jesus Christ is in charge of our church. It's our church and only our church that can rightly determine just exactly what Jesus Christ wants us to do. It may be different for somebody up the road, right? Uh, they're in a different area. They're in a different, uh, the Gill Grove is in a, in a completely different type of community than we're in. They may have a different way of reaching their community than we do. But we have to determine what Christ wants us to do, which is why I never understood how you can have... Uh, organizational leadership anyway, where you have somebody that's over a group of 50 churches and they tell all of those 50 churches what they have to preach every week, which is, is they do. 
They have books that they, they, they send out at the beginning of the year with this is, you know, we want everybody to be preaching the same thing in all of our churches. So this is what, you know, week one, this is what you're going to preach. Week two, this is what you're going to preach. No, number one, it's, it's lazy on the part of the pastors because they're not studying the Bible. They're, they're taking what somebody wrote out and just regurgitating those things. But number two, how does somebody that's in St. Louis somewhere know what this church in this area needs? Right? They don't know our people. They don't know what our people deal with. They don't know what our people are struggling with. They don't know what kind of things they're going through. They have no idea of those things. And so uh, every individual church is led by Jesus Christ himself, and it's our responsibility, and particular my responsibility as a pastor, to know what Christ wants for our church and to lead it in that direction. Paul didn't tell Timothy's church who their deacons were. He gave Timothy direction of, hey, bring on some deacons. You guys go choose who your deacons are going to be, Right? Turn over, to, turn over to Acts chapter 6. He let them choose for themselves under the direct leading of the Holy Spirit. Right? That type of church structure is sometimes called congregational. It's modeled in Acts chapter 6 there in verse number 3. We see this. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. He didn't say you need to appoint this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy. They said, hey, you look out, look at your congregation, you figure out who fits those qualifications, and then you make them deacons. Congregational self-government under the direct headship of Jesus Christ and nobody else. The Lord directs the pastor through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. By the way, the Bible, and I mentioned this on Sunday, but the Bible doesn't, uh, it doesn't suggest that various church groups are to be over the church, right? There's no deacon board that it runs the church. There's no trustee organization that runs the church, no certain committee that runs the church. The Lord leads the pastor in all of those matters. And I realize that men are subject to lead the church wrongly. I could lead this church in the wrong direction. I could. And that's where it's, 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 it's up to you to make sure that you are studying the word of God for yourself and making sure that, that the things that are being preached are things that are coming from the word of God. But if I am being led by the Holy Spirit, then I should be leading this church in a direction that is underneath the authority of the Bible, not away from it, and that fits in with the doctrine of the Bible and not opposed to it, right? That's the way that it's supposed to work. But when the pastor is under leadership of the Spirit of God in the Bible, then things will go properly, they'll go smoothly. So first thing is the, the, the basis, the biblical basis for that local church autonomy is because Jesus Christ is the head of the church. But number two, each local church has the right to manage its own affairs. And let's look at a few examples. Look at Acts chapter 13, because the church, each church has the right to manage its own affairs when it comes to missions work. Acts chapter 13 and verse number one. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said... Separate me, Barnabas, and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. Now, I want you to notice, who said that? The Holy Ghost, right? Not somebody that was in the church at Jerusalem or church at Antioch or somebody up the road, and he's over this group of churches, and he says, hey, send out Paul and Barnabas, right? He didn't say that. The Holy Ghost, as they fasted, as they prayed, the Holy Ghost said, separate them for me. I've called them to that work. Verse 3. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. 
They were under the direct leading of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit said, separate these two men, ordain them, send them out. And they sent them out from that church under the direct leading of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's very interesting that the church at Antioch made all the decisions concerning the sending of Barnabas and Saul for missions work. There was no board that was appointed. There was no authority considered other than the church at Antioch. And by the way, this is not, uh, this is not uh, meant for this lesson necessarily, um, but when it comes to the idea of mission boards, I don't, there's nothing necessarily wrong with a mission board in and of itself because they're there to help the missionary. But if, if uh, we are going to use a mission board, it ought to be under the authority of a local church. Now, Nitin's not going with a mission board. He's directly under our church. We're handling all of, all of the money and all the affairs and everything else that's coming in. We're taking care of that directly. Only reason you would need a mission board is not so you have somebody who can be the authority to that missionary, that the sending church and the pastor of that sending church is the authority over that missionary, and that's, that is who should be responsible for them. It's, again, it's, when it comes to knitting, it's my responsibility to make sure that he is doing what is, what's right, that he's not getting off doctrinally when he gets to the mission field, that he's not preaching things that, that are wrong according to the word of God when he gets to that mission field. That's not a board's job. That's not a mission board's job. That's our job. He's being sent out by the local church, not by a mission board or some other outside agency. Um, Nitin knows probably more about India than any mission board does anyway because he's, he's from there. So we don't need a mission board to tell him how to run things when he gets there. He knows what he's doing, and he's under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. His responsibility is going to be to this church and to, to, to you all and to us. And so uh, when it comes to missions work, every local church has the right to manage their affairs. When it comes to choosing missionaries, sending missionaries, who we support, how we support them, and all of those other things. No, nobody else has the right to tell us what we can and cannot do when it comes to missions work. Second, then, in, in Acts chapter 6, is choosing deacons. I'm not going to read that whole passage all the way through again because we just read it, but I think verse 3 would be helpful. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom, may, whom we may appoint over this business. Right? Choosing deacons. Every church has the right to choose who the deacons will be. Thirdly, um, every local church has the right to manage its own affairs when it comes to choosing members to represent the congregation in business matters. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Now, I'll be the first to say that I don't, uh, I don't know everything there is to know about business. Far from it. Right? I don't know everything there is to know about investing. Far from it. I don't know everything there is to know about uh, finances and all of these other budgets and all of this other stuff. Now, I have to know some things, or I would be uh, kind of worthless in this position. Um, but I'll be the first to say that I need help in those areas. Right? We need somebody to be uh, the treasurer, and we need somebody to be the, the, the clerk and, and all of these other things. Right? But it says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 3, And when I come, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, then will I send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. Now, I think that's pretty interesting. Paul, the apostle Paul, the great Christian, the great missionary, the great evangelist that started all of these churches, if anybody was coming in to say, nope, no, no, no don't do it that way. I want this guy to be in, in control of the finances. I want this guy to be doing this. I mean, and most of them probably would have said, okay, you're, you're Paul. You tell us what you want us to do, right? Paul didn't do that. He, he said there in 1 Corinthians 16, 3, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters. You tell me who it is, and then I'll send them, right? 
So we have that authority as a local church. We have treasurer and a church clerk, people who have the authority to sign checks and all of those things. Uh, the church at Corinth chose who would carry the gifts to Paul. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't a postal system available there as there is now, and various people would handle carrying the gifts to the missionaries and so on. We do that today, right? We don't, we don't hand carry it. We send it in the mail system to the home church of that missionary, but then they handle that, and they send it to the missionary, and they make sure that he gets it and so on. So in the matter of our own missionaries, we, you know, we, we uh, deposit their gifts into these predetermined accounts, whether it's be that they want it to be sent to their church or whether they, however they do it. We, we do it the way that they want it to be done. Yeah, we're given the money, and yes, we are supporting those missionaries, but every individual church gets to decide how they want to do it. So we do what they want to do when it comes to those things. So um, when it comes to uh, missions work, choosing deacons, choosing um, representatives for the congregation and business matters, but then also um, every church has a right to, to manage its own affairs when it comes to choosing the pastor. Every local congregation has the authority to call their own pastor. And again, that's different than um, a lot of denominations do it. There's no higher church authority that dictates to every local assembly who their pastor is going to be. And there's, there's a lot of denominations who every four years, they rotate pastors. They send somebody out and they bring another one in. And I was just talking to somebody the other day that said the exact same thing. They're like, it's really hard because just as soon as you start to get to know this person and you finally open your heart up to them and spill everything, you know, all of your secrets and everything that you need help with and all these other things, he leaves and you get somebody in there that you don't really like and now you're not going to tell this guy. that. So, you, so really, you're just hanging on for four years until that guy goes and somebody else comes in, right? Um, the church didn't have any say in a lot of those. And um, there's, I, I was talking to another person, different church, different scenario. Um, you know, they said uh, we had a pastor that was there for actually like eight or ten years. We really liked him, and they moved him out, and this new guy we don't really like, so we don't even go to church anymore. Uh, that's what happens, you know. When, you don't, when the congregation has no choice in who their pastor is, and that's given to you by some kind of outside agency, then there, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's a hierarchy that chooses which preacher is going to go to a certain church and all of those things. And so uh, when it comes to Baptist churches, normally when a, a pastor leaves the pastorate, there's a church, um, uh, the church chooses a pulpit committee. That committee has people come in and candidate, and uh, they pick the best candidate for their church, right? It might be somebody who's a who, perfect fit somewhere else up the road, and he comes in, and he's just not the fit for that, that church, that area, that location, whatever it happens to be. So that, that process continues until a pastor is called by the church. And once the church approves who will be the pastor, it becomes official. No other body approves the pastor. That's the responsibility of the church. But every local church has the right to control its own resources as well. So I said that every local church has the right to manage its own affairs, but also to control its own resources. We, as a local, autonomous, New Testament, Baptist church, can choose how we spend the money here in this church. We can choose what bank we want. We can choose, you know, what, what, we've, what we feel is the most important uh, to put money into, right? Um, it's a lot of churches, uh, and that's not necessarily that the budget is determined by somebody else, but they have to give a certain amount to missions, and they have to give a certain amount to the parent organization, and they have to do this, and they have to do that. And again, every area is different, right? Um, you know, it may be that somebody puts a ton of money into tracks, and that's what they want to do. 
Maybe that, you know, some other church puts a ton of money into mail-outs because that's how they can get the gospel out in their area. Maybe that somebody else puts a ton of money into a food bank because that's the best way they can get the gospel out in their area. Every area is different, and every church has the right to determine how they control their resources. Number four, every local church can choose which ministries they want to have, right? We don't have to have Sunday school at 10 o'clock. We do. We don't have to have the morning service at 11 o'clock. We do. We don't have to have the evening service at 6 we do that, but we can choose any of, the, any of the ministries, any of the service times, any of those things that we decide to do. A lot of Baptist churches um, have, a, have a Christian day, uh, day school or daycare in some cases, but the individual church can choose what they want to do in those matters, right? Um, the the uh, Gill Grove, where, where our kids go to school, it's closed after the fourth grade. If your parents are not members of the church after the fourth grade, you cannot get in there because they, it's meant to be a church school. Designed to keep, you know, some 10th grade kid that got kicked out of the public school from saying, hey, I want to finish. Can you put him in there? And now you got this 10th grade kid that already got kicked out of the public school that's bringing everything in from the public school and everything else, you know, the rebellious attitude and all this stuff that got him kicked out of the public school in the first place and bringing it into the Christian school. Some churches see the Christian school as a ministry, as an outreach ministry, and so they'll let anybody come in so they can hopefully teach them the gospel, get them saved. It's just they have the right to decide what they want to do. Um, in, in those matters because they can choose which ministries they want and how those ministries can be run. You know, we, can, we, can, uh, we, don't, we don't have to have a choir. We choose to have one. We don't have to have a certain hymnal. We chose which hymnal we have. And by the way, we picked the one we have because it has the most hymns in it. We took probably six or seven different hymnals and compared all of the different hymnals. And um, not that I'm opposed to new hymns that are being written, but the hymn book that we have was missing, I think, two uh, compared to all of the rest of the hymnals. There was only two hymns that were not in our book that were in all of the rest of them. And that's why I picked the one that we did. It's got a lot of them in there, 600 and something songs, right? There's a lot, there's a lot in there, and that's why we chose that one. But we don't have to have this one, just like the church up the road is not wrong if they don't have this one, right? They can do what they want to do. Um, we can have a piano or an organ or both or neither. We can, we can choose who we fellowship with. We can choose not to fellowship with whomever we choose not to fellowship with. We don't have... We don't have to have a certain type of printing organization or any kind of teaching, you know, a material or whatever. We can, we can decide how we want to do that as an individual local church. You know, there's a lot of other things that, that go into that as well. But that also means this, and, and I think this is something that we do have to be careful of a little bit. It doesn't mean that another independent Baptist church doesn't have, uh, uh, has to do it exactly the same way that we do it for them to be right as well. Right? Just because they don't do it exactly the way that we do it does not mean that they're wrong. Right? Churches decide to do what fits best with their area, decide to do what fits best for their church, decide to do what fits best for them getting the gospel out into their area. Right? We have, we have screens up here. There's some churches who would be violently opposed to those things and say, you're, you know, it's, it's wrong to bring that into the church. They have the right to say that, and I, and I would respect that if that's what they wanted to do. Right? So somebody could have a giant screen on the whole wall if that's what they wanted to do. I mean, you know, I don't. I don't want it to overtake the whole building. But if somebody decided that that's what they wanted to do, they have the right to do that. And so we have to be careful about that. We only need to separate from them when their preferences and their stand slip past the point of following what? Biblical authority, right? If it slips past the point of following biblical authority, then that's where we separate other than that, we can certainly speak our minds about their position in relation to what we think the Bible teaches, but we have no right to make them change. We don't have any authority over anybody else. 
doesn't mean that I have to fellowship with them, but it doesn't mean that they're the enemy either. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of churches make as well. Just because somebody is not doing it exactly the same way that we are doesn't mean that they're the enemy. Um, if they are doing everything they can to spread the message of the gospel, then we're on the same team. We don't have to fellowship with them necessarily, but we also we shouldn't be out there attacking them either. Uh, they're, they are, if they're getting the gospel out, um, you know, they may do things differently enough than us that we don't necessarily have fellowship with them and, and uh, you know, do all kinds of church functions and everything else together, but we're on the same team and we're pulling for them and we want them to w win as many people to Christ as they can, right? And when we attack them for something small, it harms the, the gospel going out. And that's not, that's not beneficial either. We can and we do fellowship with like-minded churches, but we don't tie ourselves together either. Which brings me then to the fifth thing. Every local church has the right to choose by what method they function. And again, we've already kind of talked about this a little bit, but if we want to have a treasurer, we can have one. If we want to have deacons, we can have one. If we want to have a, you know, a tall, handsome, well-spoken person to pastor the church, then we can choose to do that. Or you can choose somebody like me, however you want to do it. But it's our local church under the direction of the Bible and the Holy Spirit. We can do what we feel is right to do for our church. Now let me cover a couple things as we kind of bring this to a close here. What are some threats to Baptist autonomy? Because there are threats to that, all right? Number one is this. Internal cliques or groups who want to control the leadership at a church, is, it causes lots of problems. Um, that usually ends in a church split. A lot of people end up never choosing to go to church again after that, and a lot of people are harmed spiritually uh, by a church split. Nobody benefits in a church split. And by the way, you should never be part of a church split. I'm not saying that you should never leave a church, um, but you should never be part of a split. Um, if it comes to a split and you can't stay with the, the home church, the mother church, if we will, whatever you want to call it, then you should leave and go to a completely different church. Um, a split is caused when somebody in the church, usually a staff member, takes some of the members, goes a few blocks up the road, and starts another church. And neither benefits from that. And, and I'll be honest with you, I don't think that a church split is of God. If you don't like what's going on in the church because it's opposed to the Bible, if they're preaching something that's not doctrinal, if they're not uh, doing something according to the Word of God, then you ought to quietly leave. Um, you ought to leave, but you ought to quietly leave. And, um, you know, those that are dissatisfied, just, just leave, find another church quietly. A threat to autonomy from within a church surfaces when the members don't exercise biblical principles and give in to pressures from outside organizations is what happens a lot of times. But um, church members ought to overcome any of that apathy or that ignorance or the fear um, that would cause them to abandon the, the, the cherished biblical concept of autonomy. Um, but a lot of times that happens, and, and again, I mean, we're not even big enough to have, or we don't have an, a, a staff, so it's not like, uh, you know, you're, you're going to the staff and saying, hey, we need to split off and start another church. But, you know, nobody benefits from that. Then the, uh, when, when you have a split then what happens is you have this group who is opposed to this group, and none of those people are getting along, and certainly that's not, that's not uh, uh, unity, that's not brotherly love. None of that stuff is going to happen when, when a church split takes place. The community sees that. 
what ends up happening is it's just, it just becomes bitter rivals. And I'll tell you what happens. Whenever you, whenever you have a church split and a church splits and goes off, you're always going to have a church split off of that split because that is all made up of people who are just never going to be satisfied. And they're not going to like what happens in that new church either. And that church is going to split and that church will probably split and they'll keep splitting until there's nothing left of any of the churches. Right? If, if you need to leave a church because it's not preaching doctrinal things, because it's preaching things that are opposed to the word of God, then leave it. But do it quietly. Do it, for, do it quietly for the cause of Jesus Christ. That's one threat. A second one would be challenges from outside the congregation. And, of course, that comes when organizations try to tell a church what they can or cannot do according to the word of God. And, uh, again, most of the time that's government control. Secular governments try to put that pressure a lot of times. Uh, I was, um, you know, John MacArthur, I have differences with him, but I think John MacArthur did such a wonderful thing when they stood up to the government telling them that they can't have church. And they were, they were finding them something like $10,000 every single time they had church. And he said, I don't care. You can find me a million dollars. We're going to have church. Right? And they had church. And guess what? John MacArthur just won that lawsuit. And now the county or city or whatever it is is paying them because of all these things that they caused during that time. So, uh, you know, stand up to those things. The government has no right to exert that pressure. And, and again, going back, back to our roots, Baptists have resisted uh, most of that external pressure for many, many years, and we've held fast to the belief in religious freedom and separation of church and state. Which brings us to the last thing then. Turn over to Matthew chapter 16, the benefits of Baptist autonomy. The first one is this. It keeps the church pure. Keeps the church pure. And again, all of that hinges on whether or not we are following biblical authority. If we're following the Bible's authority and we base our doctrines and everything that we're doing off of the word of God, then Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, and I say also unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's a promise for divine protection. It's a promise for perpetual protection by Jesus Christ for the local church. But it's only for the local church. It's not for a grouping of churches who turn their decision-making authority over to some external human authority. And again, I, I used this as an example a little bit ago, but, but um, honestly, the United Methodist Church, when they started doing all of their splitting amongst themselves, because you have one faction that is completely opposed to the other faction within the United Methodist Church, I'll tell you how it happened. It's because they started doing these teachings and um, a lot of that liberal, very liberal theology was being taught in their seminaries. And then they send these pastors out into these churches and the church didn't get a choice in who they got as their pastor. They got appointed that pastor and he came in and he started preaching all these liberal doctrines and liberal theology that he got from the university. And four years later, they moved him to another place. Well, in four years, he's had a lot of time to convert a lot of people over to those liberal ideas. And now you get somebody that is opposed to those things that comes in and tries to change those back to the way that they were before, and now they're pushing back against him. And they can't wait for him to leave so they can get somebody else in there that's liberal. But that liberal theology just spreads to all of the United Methodist churches because they don't have a choice in who they bring in. They get appointed a pastor. And, um, you know, so if our church becomes theologically corrupted, it only affects our church. But if our denomination becomes theologically corrupted, 
theologically corrupted, then it affects a whole lot of churches because now they're pushing everything out. They're telling you what you have to teach on Sunday. They're telling you what you have to preach on Sunday. They're telling you who your pastor has to be. And that's how, that's how you get a very theologically liberal denomination very quickly because you have no autonomy as a local church. History is filled with examples of, of once theologically sound denominations that became liberal, but not so much with individual churches um, because you have the right to decide what is biblical and what is not. You don't have some organization telling you what's biblical and what's not. So autonomy keeps the church pure. Number two, autonomy allows each individual congregation to determine how best to reach and minister to their community. Um, the community that that church exists in, again, the pastor, the people in that church are going to know their community way better than somebody five states away who's over 10 states, right? They don't know what this area is like. They don't know how we should best be trying to reach this area. We do, and we're trying those things. We got a lot of lines in the water, like I said on Sunday, right? We got, we, we're trying to catch fish in as many different ways as we can. And so uh, our church is going to be the one to be able to determine that better than anybody else. And that's a benefit of Baptist autonomy because now we should be able to reach more people with the gospel because we know how to best reach those people. The third one then is that church autonomy reinforces the fact that in a Baptist church, each member is responsible for the church. Um, being a member of this church makes you responsible to each member for your own conduct and your behavior in church and in public, right? Uh, we have, we've, thankfully, we've never, have to, never had to do it, but we have church discipline, right? And, and if it got to the point where we needed to institute church discipline, we could within our church, right? You look at the Mormons, and they institute church discipline on a, on a very grand scale, and you have to go talk to one of the, the bishops that's, you know, over a bunch of churches, and they're the ones that determine your punishment and how long you're going to be banned from the church, or not from the church, but the temple and all of these other things, right? They don't know that person. They don't care. I mean, I'm, I can't say for sure that they don't care about that person, but I think in most cases, they don't care who it is. They don't care how harsh the, the punishment is or what they're doing or any of those kind of things because it's just business, because it's just me being over all of these churches and over all of these congregations. But with us... We care about that person. If you look at the point of church discipline, it's not to kick a bad egg out, right? It's to hope that that person comes back to being in fellowship with the Lord, back to being in fellowship with the other Christians, right? The hope is to restore that person, not to just, you know, institute some kind of punishment that they go live out and then they come back and nobody even realizes that they, they were gone, right? And that's, that's the difference. When you join a New Testament Baptist church, you're vowing to that body that you're going to conduct yourself according to the authority of the Word of God. That's why, that's why no member should take the attitude that they can do as they please because we are all in this body together under the authority of the Word of God. And that's true only in the realm of the authority of the Bible. I don't have a right to tell you to do something or not to do something if, you, if we are not following the authority of the Word of God. So we, as a church, corporately, are completely free to determine what God would have us to do. We, we must be yielded to the headship of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, not me. Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit ought to be what is leading this church. My responsibility is to make sure that I'm in tune with what that leading is so I can lead this church in the right direction, 
but I'm not the head of this church, just as if I was gone tomorrow. The church doesn't fall apart. The church doesn't, you know, go on running around like a chicken with his head cut off because I'm not the head. Christ is the head, right? I'm just acting in his place because he's not going to get up here in bodily form and preach a message to you, right? So, um, but assuming that there is no intervening human authority to direct us differently than what we believe is right, how we structure a church service, what ministries our church has, how we spend our money, what missionaries we support, what music and what Bible we use, what subjects we choose to emphasize in our teaching and preaching, where our church meets, how often, who our pastor and deacons are, what theological positions we hold to them. And there's so many things that have to be determined in a church. But that's the beauty of one of the Baptist distinctives is that we have the autonomy as a church to decide what things are best for our church. That's the autonomy of the local church. Not so we can rebel against God, but so we can fully and immediately submit to what we sincerely believe he wants us to do and to be as a church. That's where autonomy comes in. It's not so we can run off and say, well, we never liked this Bible anyway, and now nobody can tell us what to do, right? It's so we can say, hey, we are trying as much as we can to follow exactly what the Bible says, and we don't have anybody else telling us how we have to do that. It's not so we can rebel. It's not so we can just go off and do what we want to. It's so that we can more closely follow what the Word of God says we should be doing. That's where autonomy comes in. And that's one of the Baptist distinctives. What's the first Baptist distinctive? Biblical authority. And what's the second one? Autonomy. Very good. We'll get into the third one next week. Does anybody want to take a stab at what the P is? Jackson? Priesthood of the believer. Very good. We'll talk about that next week. Let's pray. And then we'll be dismissed. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you, as always, for an opportunity we have to open up your word. I pray that you'd help each one of us, from the pastor on up, to make sure that we are doing what the Bible wants us to do, living the way the Bible would command us to live, and living as closely as we can to, to the doctrines of the word of God. And once we find them, as we believe we have, that we'd stand on those promises, stand on those truths and those principles, even till death, if necessary. And God, I pray that you'd help us to spread the message of the gospel. What a, what a tremendous message it is. And I pray that you'd help us to realize the importance of it and the beauty of it so that we could share it with as many people as we can with the time that we have left. Pray that you'd send us away from here with your blessing tonight. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.